Well, before you is the idea that um, the kind of leadership that we need today is the kind that is, arises from the consciousness, the expansion, the deepening, the enhancement, the enrichment of consciousness, of awareness that comes especially directly through meditation. Life itself makes us conscious if we are open to it and respond to it and don't dull our minds. But meditation is a way of uh, specifically and consciously collaborating with that work. Much of our contemporary chaos can be attributed to, let's say, the combination of constant change, so much, so quick that we can't keep up with it. As soon as we adjust to one situation, something else has happened to change it. To a combination of constant change and also the very modern, contemporary phenomenon of online consciousness, 24-7 media awareness and stimulation. We're all subject to it. So this combination of constant and rapid change and our being constantly tuned in to the latest, latest news. And if we live on the grid, as we all, almost everyone does today, we can hardly avoid this. And it's certainly one of the reasons that we feel overwhelmed, we feel we can't keep up with things. It's one of the reasons a lot of people just tune out from uh, any kind of reflective um, listening to the news. It just seems too much, too chaotic. But perhaps an even more radical cause for concern and even fear is the lack of conscious leadership. Leaders are charged with managing our affairs, at the very least. They should look after things for us, that's what a bank manager should do, or that's what a, somebody who looks after things for us. That's what our political leaders are basically charged with doing, and they enjoy doing it, so we elect them to do it. And then also, more than that, they have to lead us, guide us safely through the storms and unexpected events of life and guide us into the future. But if leaders themselves are caught up in the same chaos of change, and reactive immediacy, sort of tweeting every 20 seconds, communicating in these, as more and more do, in this very immediate way. How can they lead if their conscious awareness has become unfit for purpose? If they are just as confused as everybody else? How can they lead if they, are, if they feel inadequate themselves to the challenges of the, of the demands they face? Or even, how can they lead 
if they are actually dysfunctional. And of course, we need information, we need expertise, and we need strategy. But most essentially, we need leaders who are awake. And I'd like to explore this evening this contemporary phenomenon that is very widely held, or widely uh, perceived by our contemporaries, which is the failure of leadership. And I'd like to explore that awareness from a contemplative perspective, using some of the lessons we can learn from the past, perhaps, and wisdom from our own spiritual tradition. The word leader is an, has an Indo-European root, and its core meaning is one who travels with, or one who causes us to go along our way. So it's the idea of guiding, of accompanying, of conducting. The word leader is also related to the word load. So one of its meanings is to carry. So a leader is someone who helps to carry your load. It's not a, that is not a domineering, forceful concept of leadership, but it's an associative one and a supportive one. And we can see today in many of the much of the reflection that's taking place in business schools or in political theory about the nature of leadership and organization, we can see these different concepts uh, being introduced and compared with each other. And often the claim is made that we are moving into new kinds of organizational structure and new kinds of leadership. So maybe all of these kinds of leadership are embedded in the history of the words. But the word leadership uh, only meant to be out in front from the 16th century. In other words, you know, the, the soldier or the officer who put, gets out of the trench and leads his men into, into the attack uh, across the battlefield. Uh, that's a very modern, relatively modern concept of leadership. And only from the 20th century has the word leader been associated with a head of state, that kind of political leader, or a Führer, or a Il Duce. So let's try to, uh, this is a little um, speculative, or if we say playful, but let's try to see what a leadership, what leadership might mean today by comparing two very different leaders Pope Francis and President Trump. <laughs> Why do you laugh? The Pope announced just the other day, I think, that he was praying for the discernment to be able to know when would be the right time for him to retire. 
We could not imagine President Trump saying that, or even imagining that, that reality that leader, leadership is, you know, has a use-by date and uh, nobody stays in their role forever. There are some modern leaders, like uh, the uh, president, what's his name, of Zimbabwe recently? Mugabe, you know, it was in 92. And obviously convinced he was going to live in, in, immortally. So uh, that's certainly one in, in interesting and important factor of conscious leadership, that you are conscious that your time is limited and that you might want to gracefully retire rather than wait, you know, for a political assassination. President Trump is famously impetuous and he likes to manage events by creating uncertainty and unpredictability about what he is going to do. And this keeps the focus very strongly on himself. I will be announcing on Wednesday this or that. We don't know whether it's going to be through a tweet or through a press conference or, you know, as he's getting on a plane, we don't know how it's going to be announced. So this certainly keeps the attention very much on himself rather than on the issues or rather than on the collective mind of his advisors and the institutions that somebody with so much power and responsibility has to work with. By contrast, the Pope is very uh, consciously spontaneous, not impulsive. I asked somebody once who knew him, um, do you think the Pope is impetuous? And he said, no. He said, I think he is generally spontaneous. Uh, but he always seems to know what the consequences of what he says or does spontaneously will be. So it's not so much a calculated, there's a spontaneity there, but there's also a consciousness, which isn't just self-consciousness, it's a consciousness about the, the good or the bad consequences of what he is doing whether it's a surprise remark or a surprise action, like marrying two um, flight attendants on a, on, his, on a plane back from Chile a few weeks ago, or bringing some refugee children back from wherever he was uh, in, in Asia. But he makes people feel that his motivation is altruistic rather than narcissistic. It isn't about, look at me, but it's, look at the issue that is being addressed or referred to here. And the effect of his spontaneous actions seems to be to send a message that we don't need to be so uptight about the rules and regulations, that we can respond directly and personally 
to people with situations where there is suffering and need. We don't have to go through a whole lot of rigmarole. We can, we can be present directly uh, where there is a need. Now, of course, he knows as Pope that he's a center of global attention, constant press coverage. But he doesn't give the impression of being caught up in that, or dazzled by it, or addicted to it. Now, we don't know, of course. He may be, but it would be very surprising, I think, to us to feel, to discover that that was the case. He, he has a freedom of spirit and liberty. President Trump is often at odds with the institutions to which his office is bound uh, and is, has to cooperate. Famously, of course, with the Justice Department. He fires and hires officers of these institutions quite impetuously and if he appoints them if they comply with his wishes and express their loyalty. Now the Pope has lots of problems within his own organization. He has a group of cardinals and, and uh, leaders in the Catholic Church who are vehemently, vehemently opposed to him and everything he's doing and even whispering about schism and that he is in danger of being a heretic. So he has a lot of problems uh, at home uh, as well. But dealing with the conservative leadership of the Vatican Curia, he still plays by the rules. He respects the institutions that he is part of. He has more absolute power than the President of the United States within the Vatican, and therefore within the Catholic Church, he can do what he likes. But he acts in a restrained way by comparison. He trying, he's trying, it seems, to change the prevailing attitude in the Church. He's doing that intelligently by judicious appointments, careful choosing the kind of people who share his, his attitude. He can't, he can't just have a night of the long lives and sack everybody, but he's replacing them when, they, when their time comes with, he has fired one or two people, but uh, on the whole, you know, the great majority of cases, he works by the rules, and, but he's changing minds and hearts and attitudes by persuasion and example rather than by force. A couple of years ago there were, there were two sinners on the family, which was unusual. And the first seemed to be designed simply to get the conservative wing of his opposition, of people who would be opposed to his views, to express themselves. He said, don't just whisper about it and go home and plot against, uh, against these ideas, and, but uh, talk about it, let's have a proper discussion. So he brings them all back uh, a few months later for a, an open discussion. So a very different attitude towards dealing with institutional resistance by respecting the institutions, but at the same time trying to lead it, trying to lead them into new positions, new attitudes, new ways of behavior.
President Trump creates an emotional whirlwind of immediate and unpredictable behavior and communication. The Pope's personal routine of prayer and the way he fulfills his ceremonial duties of his office present, by contrast, a picture of stability and fidelity, even in the midst of turbulence and conflict. So of these two, many would perhaps say that the Pope is a better illustration of conscious leadership than the President. There is an awareness there, an awareness of responsibility, an awareness of the need to lead, to go to a different place, but not by force, not by creating chaos, but by changing attitudes, opinions, and relationships uh, from within. A combination of, of confrontation and of uh, reconciliation. So what does the Pope have that the President doesn't? Perhaps he has what Arist Aristotle regards as the essential quality of all leadership, virtue. In his great uh, work on ethics, Aristotle says that this is necessary for all kinds of leaders, kings, managers, parents, who lead by example and persuasion, we might say by inspiration, rather than by domination, manipulation, and fear. If we feel inspired by a leader, that may be a good sign that we are being treated with respect by somebody who's conscious of what they're doing and knows the consequences or the possible consequences of what they are doing. Aristotle thought that virtue must be conscious, it has to be understood before leadership can be inspirational in this sense. So you have to have a self-awareness, it's not that you go around saying, oh, I'm a very virtuous person, I'm better than anybody else. Virtue isn't, is, is not just about that, we'll see in a moment what virtue actually means in this context. But we have to be conscious of it, and it's that consciousness of virtue that gives the self-confidence to a leader, especially to a leader who is guiding, accompanying people through a time of chaos and danger. That self-confidence is essential. You need more than self-confidence to be a leader. You also need talent, you also need commitment, you also need the, to be in the right, the right person at the right time in the right place. Like Churchill in, in um, The Darkest Hour, if you've seen that film, you know, he, well, he was pretty much of a failure as a peacetime politician, 
But he was the right man at the right time uh, during the darkest hour. So to be conscious of the virtue that is within you is not to be proud of yourself as a superior being or think that you deserve greater respect or greater adulation than anybody else. It is actually to have this deep-rooted confidence in your own goodness. There's a lot of discussion um, in business schools at the moment and in our work of teaching meditation and leadership uh, at a business school in Georgetown. Uh, we always end, well, we often have conversations during the course, but there's a particular focus on ethics uh, at the end of the, towards the end of the course. And what we say to the, uh, these future leaders of, in many different fields is that um, ethical behavior is not just a matter of following regulations, nor is it just a matter of following certain moral principles that you have accepted or articulated for yourself. Moral behavior, ethical behavior, is really most confidently grounded in the experience of your own essential goodness. And what does that mean? It means exactly what we come to experience as a result of meditation. Meditation surprises us because it leads us to an experience we don't expect and we often don't have any categories for describing, but which is simply this discovery and realization that despite all our faults, all our failings, all our inadequacies, all our whatever mistakes we've made, fundamentally, essentially, we are surprisingly good. And that discovery of your goodness seems to me to be the essential criterion, the, 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 the bedrock, really, of ethical behavior. You'll know what is good, a good decision to make, a good thing to say, because you will be relating it intuitively and immediately to that experience of goodness in yourself. And if an alarm bell goes off, you're lying or you're doing the wrong thing, you may still do it, but you'll know what you're doing. You'll know that you're acting out of, uh, in, say, in a way that's disobedient to your own conscience, to your own awareness of your own goodness. Just be aware of it intuitively. So Aristotle thought that virtue must be conscious, and this consciousness rests very precariously on the knife edge of the sword of the golden mean of moderation, of the middle way. And this is fundamental common sense. We live with this every day, which is why we are 
so often saying, I would like to have more balance in my life, I would like to feel more integrated. And when we feel unbalanced, when we feel our life is spilling out all over the place and there's no center to it and there's no integration, no balance, uh, that can lead us into some very sad suffering and psychological distress. Basically, we all seek this balance, which is another word for health. Too much exercise or too little exercise destroys your health. To fear everything makes us ineffective cowards. To fear nothing makes us dangerously reckless. Too much pleasure or too little pleasure uh, are equally bad for us. So, in the most obvious of ways, the golden mean that Aristotle speaks about, the, uh, the, the middle way, finding the balance, is uh, essential for this quality of virtue that is the basis of, of, of good behavior. But the wisdom of this middle way, of the golden mean, which leads to virtue, cannot be reduced, unfortunately, to rules and fixed procedures. We just can't do it by the rule book. We need some basic rules, but we also need to know when to suspend the rules or bend the rules or maybe go through a red light if, if you're being chased by, by robbers. Bureaucracy, one of the curses of our digital age, is, uh, is of course op operates in a very inflexible commitment to fix rules and procedures. I'm sorry I can't get you on that plane, that earlier plane, which is empty, because uh, the computer won't let me do it. So we also not only need this middle way, but we need the mother of all virtue, which St. Benedict says is discernment in order to be virtuous. And discernment is not a, a, a once and for all judgment and assessment of a situation. It is remaining, as any good leader would be, in constant touch, in continuous uh, communication with all of the changing parts and moving bits and people of a situation. You have to be well informed, you have to be present, you can't be in your ivory tower. You have to be in touch with the changing circumstances of the situation. If you are to be able to discern that what you do today may be different from what you did yesterday, but this is what you should be doing today. This is very clear in the rule of St. Benedict, which, which is often used as a kind of a manual for uh, contemporary uh, leadership uh, seminars. The abbot leader in the rule has to continuously 
adapt himself. He's an impossible rule, an impossible role, but he has to be continually adapting himself to different temperaments, different kinds of people, and to different conditions. He needs to be highly conscious if he's not to damage the weak members of the community by being too strict, or to corrupt the strong by overindulgence, by not being disciplined enough with them. So moderation and virtue are not arithmetic, not mathematical, but they're qualitative. Moderation is not the same as an average. If we were to do it mathematically, we would say, well, the middle way is an average. But it's not, because the average today is not, doesn't work in the situation we're in tomorrow. So we need this, let's call it spiritual intelligence, it certainly involves emotional intelligence and consciousness, to be able to see, to discern, what is the middle way today at this moment. It is exactly right for this time and place. In the ancient world, virtue and leadership and fame Fame wasn't just about celebrity in the ancient world, it was about gaining, um, I suppose, a, a name, but more than just a name, it was, I don't know how would you describe it, uh, earning your place in history, um, which very often happened after you had been slain in battle. So you didn't sort of reap all the rewards of celebrity. Uh, in your lifetime, but you, you could die with a sense that you had done something that mattered. It's a different, quite different concept of fame than um, the tabloid idea we have. So in the ancient world, virtue, the role of leadership and fame were especially associated with the battlefield, by the way you fought died gloriously in battle. And even today, I've met soldiers who illustrate these qualities to me of virtue and good leadership, qualities which they have learned on the field of battle, maybe in Iraq or in Afghanistan. I'm not sure um, that this kind of virtue would apply to the soldiers who are operating drones from a safe operations room. But soldiers I've met who seem to me to have these qualities that they've have been actually in the heat of in the in the heat of battle. But today, the much more common field in which these virtues and this consciousness can be developed are the business field rather than the battlefield and the professional fields of our work. Because they offer the same opportunities to learn what leadership, virtue and consciousness mean. 
And I think it's in these contemporary fields that we can begin to see the answer to our present descent into chaos. I have a friend who has a very um, responsible and powerful position in a big institution, financial institution, over a good number of years he's mastered his professional skills, he knows his job, his job is constantly throwing new challenges at him, but he, he knows, he's confident that whatever gets thrown at him will be something he can handle. And so, in one sense, his work is not boring, but it has, it's lacking some kind of challenge. He knows how to do it. But he now has devoted his attention, or his consciousness, we'd say, not so much to learning uh, you know, new skills in his job. He basically knows how to do it, like driving a car. You can, you can drive it well or badly, but you know how to drive it. But he's turning his attention specifically to cultivating the way he handles and leads his team, his staff, the people he's responsible for. He's conscious of um, some faults in his character, which could lead him to be too harsh or too stern or too critical of less secure people, especially when they make a mistake. He's conscious of that. And that is where he's placing his attention. What he wants to do now is to be able to handle people better, more wisely, more compassionately, more intelligently, in fact. Because if you make somebody feel terrible about a mistake, you, you, you don't teach them very much and you may create an enemy. So his professional performance has actually improved. I mean, he does his job, which he knows how to do, even better as a result of this awakening of a higher consciousness about his relationships and responsibilities and, if you like, his leadership style. Because he's more conscious about that, he's actually building a better team his colleagues work more happily with him, more closely, more generously. They give of themselves more. And as he's found himself able to apologize when he makes a mistake and to admit to mistakes, he has gained both the respect and affection of the people he is leading in a way that is new. The competitiveness, competitiveness of, the, of the business field, like the field of battle in warfare, can produce heroism, altruism, and virtue. Or it can produce villainy, backstabbing nastiness, narcissism, and unethical, immoral behavior power very easily goes to the heads 
of certain types of leaders. The deciding factor between these two options is the level of consciousness that they possess. The quickest way to lower consciousness all around you is to raise the level of fear. Make people more frightened, you become less conscious, because then your work is not about expanding and lifting people up, but controlling them through this uh, mechanism of fear. And the people you're working with, or leading, or dominating, uh, also become subject to a, a cons more constricted consciousness. That's when we become frightened, because fear isolates us and stimulates the amygdala, part of our brain, which is what controls the fear factor, the fight-flight reaction. Now, when we're facing a hungry tiger in the middle of a jungle, or we come across a group of drunken thugs in a dark alley, then we need the amygdala to say just, you know, are you going to be able to fight, or should you just turn and run? And your adrenaline pumps and, your, and the fear works to, to help you and save you. But in daily life, and in successful institutions, organizations or teams, and in responsible relationships, this is just what we do not need. Leaders who are controlled by fear and insecurity on the field of business or professional life often appear ruthless and authoritarian. Inside, they are frightened children, frightened of competitors, frightened of uh, reputation, frightened of the unknown. But they cover up this fear by means of ruthlessness and cruelty. The world they manage to create is a world of fear, distrust, fear dominated by the choice of attack or perish, expressed very nicely by a, a few years ago, I haven't seen it recently, but there was a big poster advertising rugby union and it showed these two kind of rather big <laughs> rugby players, oh, this rugby player face, you know, and the, the headline, the motto of it was, do unto others before they do unto you. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, it is these conditions that produce the collapse of virtue and discernment in any group, because it deconstructs these qualities within ourselves personally. They disappoint because there is uh, because th there is no creativity, no hope, no joy. And these qualities necessary for good work and good relationships, virtue and discernment, and social responsibility and sensitivity to others, these all disappear in the jungle. 
because there's no room for them to flourish. There's no consciousness for them to be oxygenated by. The burden of leadership offers more than the perks of power, status and monetary reward. It offers the, the chance to grow in virtue and to develop one's own consciousness in collaboration with those you are serving by leading and developing that co common consciousness even to the level of wisdom. The virtues that Aristotle recognized were qualities such as temperance, moderation, generosity, and he uses the word or is translated uh, as magnificence. And I think it's expressed, it's not by you know, wearing great clothes and driving Lamborghinis, but it's, uh, it's it's, it was expressed in the magnificence of the gifts that leaders would give to each other, as they still do. You know, when heads of state come to visit the Queen, they would exchange gifts. I don't know if they're magnificent gifts, but I suppose that they didn't just pop out and buy them in Sainsbury's. They, they probably borrowed something from the British Museum to give, give them. <laughs> Um, so something so generous and, and enhancing to life. Pride. Pride in the sense of self-respect. And it's hard to believe that some of our more corrupt leaders today can feel much genuine self-respect. They may feel they've got away with it, but they may not even know actually what self-respect means. And the other qualities, the other virtues, are things like good temper, being able to deal with bad-tempered people in a good-tempered way. Friendliness. Why not assume that you can be friends with everyone you meet? Truth. Why not feel that you could actually try telling the truth all day? And another virtue, I don't know what, how it's, it's translated as ready wit. So the ability, I would say, to be humorous, the ability to laugh, the ability that a, a good leader, as we see, we see in the Pope, for example, uh, or Obama or other leaders, to make people laugh in a way that isn't cruel, but is playful. And we might add to this list the master virtue of love. Maybe love is implicit in all of these virtues that Aristotle uh, describes. Love is expressed in many ways, not least in compassion. I have another friend who some years ago was responsible for a large institution and two of his employees working in a foreign uh, branch, two young managers, made a mistake. They weren't so much corrupt, uh, they weren't corrupt as such, but they made a mistake, a foolish mistake, maybe cutting a corner, and uh, it led to an embarrassing uh, incident 
uh, with the host country where they were stationed. And this uh, issue came to the attention, obviously, of the people in, in the home country and uh, went to quite a high level of, uh, of discussion. And they thought, well, we have to show our host country that we, we don't tolerate this kind of behavior at all. And so we are going, we have to fire these guys and send them off. But my friend decided to oppose or to speak, to give a counter argument to this decision, which was right on, which everyone else had agreed to. And he said, we have to recognize that these people were not really being corrupt or dishonest in any significant way. They just made a mistake, cut a corner and so on. And also, they're young guys who are at the beginning of their career. And if we fire them now, entirely, then uh, we've, ruined, we've ruined their careers. And it took great courage, great virtue for him to, and I would say a form of love and loyalty to his, the people he was leading and, and a strong sense of justice, uh, to go against the prevailing uh, uh, mood of the, of the power, people who were holding power, and he won the argument. And he earned, of course, two very loyal um, uh, members of, of the organization for the next 20 years. I have a, another friend who um, has a reputation for being quite a single-minded, rather impatient, and rather not exactly ruthless, but kind of very direct, um, cutting to the quick kind of person in business matters. And a uh, senior member of his staff who had just been taken on uh, and told him that his child, the new staff member's child, had just been diagnosed with a very serious illness which would require long-term treatment and a lot of his attention. So, everybody was surprised that his response to this was not, oh God, now we've got to find somebody else to replace him. And how can we minimize the damage this is doing to the institution, they were surprised instead that he said, look, uh, take whatever time you need to be with your child, and if you need some financial help with his care, uh, let me know. Different kinds of leadership. But these three examples that I've given have one thing in common, which you might already have guessed, is that these are three meditators. Daily meditation plays a major role in bringing these leaders to that level of consciousness 
from which they were intuitively inspired to act virtuously, wisely, and compassionately. Meditation is a fine line to walk. It's a middle way that teaches us to abandon narcissism, self-centeredness, and to allow other-centeredness, altruism, to arise naturally. Not surprisingly, over time, it will lead you, if you are in a position of leadership, and we all are in some way, to see your leadership as a way of service rather than a way of domination. This is not a product of willpower or rational analysis or doing a course, but it's a surging up from the centre of our own wholeness, of our own goodness, the qualities of our true nature arising because our true nature is an icon of the divine love and wisdom that created us and leads us day by day to itself. The fruits of meditation are not manufactured. They grow. I was uh, in the room the other day and I saw this delicious bowl of fruit on the table and uh, it drew me to it. And uh, when I put my hand on it, I realized it was plastic. <laughs> very realistic, must have been very expensive. Uh, so plastic fruits, the unreal thing, can look very convincing until you try to touch them, or especially when you try to eat them. They have no natural taste or texture. But these fruits that arise from the experience of our own goodness and would transform the way we see and practice our, our way of service of others, the real fruits are full of taste and te human texture. Jesus is the human manifestation of this divine wisdom. He's the archetypal leader. He does not compel or dominate. He invites us to go along one's way with him, to, for us to follow and to be his companion, to be the companion of the one who guides and inspires us, not by fear, but by love. This is the meaning of a guru or spiritual leader. The word guru uh, has two etymologies. Um, one suggests uh, somebody who has weight and gravitas, seriousness, and the other is one who destroys darkness. So Jesus bears the solitude of leadership while remaining connected with, with the, those whom he's leading. Only those who fail to stay connected with those who they, whom they are leading, supposedly serving, and therefore who fail to know the meaning of what they're doing, only those who avoid that will avoid burnout and self-destruction or moral destruction. 
Jesus exemplifies this form of leadership. He is other-centered, and he knows that the source of his authority to be not himself, but the deep ground of being that he calls my father and your father. Not just my father, but my father and your father. Which is why he can calls his disciples not servants, but friends. So anyone exercising leadership as a Christian, or someone trying to be a Christian, will naturally look to Jesus as the leader of leaders. But he is also a universal symbol of leadership, resonating, of course, with other great gurus of, of history, who lead by inspiration, attraction, and love, not by coercion or fear. And if we were to look for that source of Jesus' own conscious leadership, we would certainly involve in, in that uh, search his times of solitude and prayer and silence. Any conscious leader knows that his consciousness arises not from a place of power, but a place of powerlessness, a place where power is divested, not where it is accumulated and possessed and protected. It doesn't arise out of a place of possessiveness, but a place of poverty, of letting go, of generosity. These are the conscious leaders that we need in all fields of life, in our chaotic times. If this seems impossible, and maybe it is, I asked uh, a great political leader once at the end of his life, uh, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, the founding father of Singapore, who learned to meditate late in his life, I asked him if he felt it would be a good idea, if he, if he would advise world leaders to meditate when they met together. And he looked at me a little smiling at my naivety and he said, well, I don't really think it would be likely that they would travel all the way around the world, you know, and they'd come together and then they would just meditate together. So I said, well, that isn't exactly what I asked you. I said, would you advise them to? And he said, ah, and he thought for a few moments and he said, yes, I would advise them. And he said, especially if there was any danger of the, of the outcome of the meeting being violence or warfare, or com no. then I would say meditate the, the whole day. <laughs> so if this seems impossible, we have to say that it is impossible. But as Origen, the second century, Christian teacher said, what is impossible becomes by the surprising grace of God possible. So we have to try, I think, to connect our formation of leaders to this way of finding consciousness. <laughs>